fixing our pickers and being attracted to emotionally available people. What a concept. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into fixing our broken ass pickers. Yes, BPS, Broken Picker Syndrome Recovery. As we talked about in episode five, and if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend that you do. BPS is one of the most common symptoms of being an adult child, getting in and staying in the wrong relationships with the wrong people. But the good news is, is that BPS is fixable. In fact, it is a natural repercussion that will occur as we heal, as we reprogram the faulty programming of our dysfunctional upbringings. And this was my experience, which I will be sharing with you all today, as well as the final chapter to the Brian number two story that I teased in an earlier episode. Then I will be chatting with relationship coach and former BPS sufferer, Adam Moroskis. Now, this guy is Mr. Fix Your Picker. Like, literally, his website is fixyourpicker.com. His Instagram handle is fixyourpicker. And he's going to tell us all about his former broken-ass picker, how the hell he fixed it, and how he now helps others to fix theirs. So let's not waste any more time and have at it. So it is February 7th, 2018. I'm at home. It's seven o'clock at night. And I receive an email from Brian number two. Now, it has been about five weeks since he broke up with me. And throughout those five weeks, I had been doing pretty okay, at least in my standards. I was still in a shitload of pain. I was still rather miserable. But... I was not as miserable as I had been the whole time that we were dating. And I had also been working with my therapist twice a week. But again, it had only been five weeks. I was by no means healed. And with that being the case, I responded to his email. So some emails are exchanged. And within an hour, he is at my apartment. So we spend about 15 minutes or so catching up, and then the conversation shifts to the conversation that exes often have prior to having post-breakup sex. 
the friends with benefits talk, the can we be friends with benefits without one of us getting hurt talk, the I want to have sex with you, but that does not mean I want to be in a relationship with you talk. Now, in this situation, you typically have the person who can handle this. And this is often the person who probably ended the relationship. And then we have the other person, the person who says they can handle it, but they really can't handle it. And they just secretly hope that eventually this will turn back into a committed relationship and ends up just getting hurt in the end. And that had always been me. I had always been that girl. That had been me with Ball Boy. That had been me with Mr. Looks Great on Paper, sleeping with them post-breakup in hopes that they would realize that they couldn't live without me. But guess what? That never happened. (laughs) And it just resulted in more pain and more suffering and more shame. So here's my chance to do something differently, guys. But like I said, it had only been five weeks. I was not healed. While I had healed enough to know that Brian number two was not my soulmate, while I had healed enough to know that sleeping with him would not result in happily ever after, while I had healed enough to know that this would only result in more pain and more suffering, I had not healed enough to where I was strong enough to not do it. So we do it. And we start hanging out again. But things were different than before. This was mostly because of the boundaries that Brian number two set into place. And thankfully, boundaries that I did not try to push. We saw each other once, maybe twice a week. It was typically during the week. We usually hung out at my apartment. Occasionally, we went out to dinner. But I was not going out to bars with him and playing babysitter. And I was not leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull him out of bars. And I was not carrying him up three flights of stairs after a night of drinking. And I wasn't living in a constant trauma response. There were times where my hypervigilance would flare up, but with much less intensity and for much shorter durations. And my state of being was not being dictated by him. I was actually showing up for work, both physically and mentally, and I was not breaking commitments and responsibilities at Brian number two's beck and call. And I had gotten back into the center of the recovery boat. I was going to tons of meetings. I got a few service positions and I picked up a few sponsees. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is that I was a somewhat functional human being. But most importantly, what I was doing differently was that I was not keeping any secrets from my therapist. And this was completely new behavior for me. When I had found myself in this situation in the past with Ball Boy, with Mr. Looks Great on Paper, I wasn't completely honest with a single soul because I knew what they would say and I knew that they were right and I was going to do it regardless because I didn't want to be helped. I didn't want to do things differently. But this time I did want help and this time I truly did want to change This time, I truly wanted to do things differently. So I was completely honest with her. On top of that, we were working through the unfinished business of my past, the scars of my childhood, and how this had impacted my life as an adult 
and especially how this had shown up for me in romantic relationships. And I began to see how the sense of purpose that I felt taking care of my mother as a kid had resulted in me being attracted to those that I could take care of. And how, as a kid, the only times I felt that my dad was emotionally available to me was when my mom was drunk and emotionally unavailable to him. And how this had resulted in me being attracted to emotionally unavailable men. And how, as a kid, I always felt that my dad had chosen work over me. And how this had resulted in me being attracted to those who never made me a priority in their life. And how my parents' inability to confront and address the dysfunction within our home had resulted in me tolerating and withstanding dysfunctional, toxic relationships. And so what starts to happen is that I start to slowly heal. And I slowly start developing the characteristics on the flip side of the laundry list. Now, we talked about the laundry list in the first episode, but we did not talk about the flip side of the laundry list, which are the characteristics that we develop as a result of adult child recovery, as a result of reprogramming our faulty childhood programming. We no longer have a compulsive need to recreate abandonment in our lives. We avoid emotional intoxication and choose workable relationships instead of constant upset. We no longer view rescuing or pitying someone as an act of love. And so as I start to slowly heal, I slowly stop being attracted to Brian number two, and I slowly stop enjoying his company. He would leave my apartment, and I would think to myself, that really wasn't very enjoyable. I think I would have preferred to have spent the last few hours by myself. It wasn't like it was torturous. It just was not pleasant. But you guys, I have a built-in forgetter. Many of us have a built-in forgetter. And a few days would go by, he would text me to hang out, and I would totally forget that the last time we hung out kind of sucked. And for some reason, I would think that this next time would be fun. And it never was. And I started to see how this person that I had been convinced that I could not live without, this person that I thought was my perfect person in spite of his drinking problem, was not my person. And that even if he were to get sober, I still wouldn't want to be in a relationship with him. This had nothing to do with him and everything to do with me. I was changing. And I wanted to cut the cord, but I couldn't cut the cord. Partially because he was obviously still fulfilling some sick, unhealthy need within me. Partially because I still felt somewhat responsible for his well-being. And partially because I was afraid of hurting him. Because even though he wasn't saying it, I could tell that he was developing strong feelings for me. Of course, this would be the case, right? As I pull away... As my feelings start to wane for him, he wants to get closer and his feelings get stronger. But I just could not walk away. And I was really beating myself up over this. I would say to my therapist, why do I keep doing this? What the fuck is wrong with me? When am I going to change? Why do I keep spending time with someone that I don't enjoy spending time with? And Mary would just reassure me that I was right where I was supposed to be that I would get to the place where I was able to walk away, and she would say, 
You obviously have more of a lesson to learn here. So is it possible that instead of saying, what the fuck is wrong with me, can you say, what am I supposed to learn here? So fast forward to July. So it's now been five months of this hanging out once or twice a week with Brian number two and five months of seeing Mary twice a week. And my parents are coming into town. And Brian number two tells me that he would like to meet my parents and that he would like to take them out to dinner. Now, Brian number two had never met my parents before. Brian number two had never expressed an interest in meeting my parents before. So he asks to meet my parents and I think, fuck. He's asking to meet my parents and I have absolutely no desire to be in a relationship with him. And it was in that moment that I realized that while I had been continuing to spend time with him out of fear of hurting him, I would only be hurting him more the longer that I strung him along. So it took me a few days, but I finally mustered up the courage to do it. It was really fucking hard and I felt guilty as hell. I told him that while I cared for him deeply, that I saw no future between us and that I thought it would be best for us to part ways. And he did not take it well. And it was a complete role reversal from when he had broken up with me. This time he was the one having the emotional breakdown. He professed his love to me, and he told me that he would do anything to be with me, and he told me that he would stop drinking from me. And over the next several weeks, he sent me flowers He showed up unannounced at my apartment, begging for me to give him another chance. He did and said all the things that I had always hoped and prayed that he would do or say. He did all the things I had always hoped and prayed any guy would do or say. But it didn't matter. And it didn't change anything for me. Because finally, I was in a place where I didn't need somebody else to complete me. And to this day, I still care deeply for Brian number two, and I have immense gratitude for him. I have immense gratitude for Brian number one and for all of the dudes my broken ass picker picked. And frankly, you all should be grateful for them too, right? They were the catalyst to the pain that brought me to my knees, that brought me to the place where I was willing to do the work, which ultimately led in me creating this podcast. So I would like us all to cheers our coconut LaCroix, our Diet Cokes, our root beers, to all of these men who were the catalyst of my pain and to all of the people that were the catalyst to your pain as well. So after this, I stayed completely single, like no dating, nothing for quite a while. It was probably at least a year and a half before I decided to dip my toe back into the dating pond. But honestly, it has not been a priority since. My priority has been me. My priority has been creating a badass, fulfilling life. But what I will say is that with the little dating I have done, I have noticed a huge fucking difference, a huge difference in the types of guys I'm attracted to and a huge difference in the way I operate in dating. Like when I have a good first date, I am not planning my wedding on the way home. 
And when a guy doesn't text me back after 30 minutes or even a few days, I am not in the fetal position wanting to die. And this is a huge fucking miracle. Like, seriously, this is a huge miracle and this is a huge blessing to not just me, but also to all of my friends who had to deal with the emotional vampire and Debbie Downer I was whenever I was dating for many, many years. So now for my conversation with Adam. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce a relationship coach, Adam Moroskis. He is the face behind fixyourpicker.com. And I, I actually, you said we found each other on Instagram. I actually had a friend of mine, Denise. She sent me one of your articles. I think it was about avoidant attachment style. So I'm super pumped to have you here. Welcome. Hey, Andrea. I'm glad to be here. I'm I like the work you're doing and, and we're, we're both on the same team doing this, this kind of healing work. Yes. Sober, formerly super broken pickers. Yours is, yours is pretty much fixed. You're married. I think that mine's fixed, but I haven't, I haven't really had like good evidence. You got to road test it. <laughs> yeah, I have a little bit. I've done a little dating and I found that I'm not attracted to what, what I once was. So that's good. <laughs> That's a great feeling. I remember the moment that it shifted for me it was miraculous. Oh, cool. I definitely want to get into that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey with your broken picker? What led up to realizing that that, that thing was real fucked up? <laughs> I guess early on, um, I just always gravitated towards other hurt, broken people because that's what I was. That's where I came from. And um, so that was my people, you know, that was my tribe. That's who I was hanging out with. And that's who I was trying to mate with. I guess looking back in, in retrospect, I, I learned a lot about this looking back, but um, like the first, the first person that I kissed in, in when I was a little kid uh, went on to become a heroin addict, right? Like obviously she, she wasn't a junkie in fifth grade, but I just tended to, to date addicts, alcoholics, and, and people that were just hurt in, in various ways, you know, whether, whether it was bulimic or, or addicted to something or cutting or whatever it was, I just, that was my people. And, and much later doing recovery work, I was able to, you know, do a bunch of inventory and unearth one of my first memories of being alive was, you know, my parents split when I was three and my mom was like, crying and like, you know, hurt, depressed, whatever, struggling with whatever single moms were struggling with. And I'm like, I don't know, five, six years old. I'm a little guy. And, and I go up to her and I hug her and I say, everything's going to be okay, mommy. 
And it turns out that every person that I ever dated from that moment forward was exactly that. It was me finding a hurt, broken, depressed woman that I, I could go make it all better for. And so that was my pattern, you know, and, and I knew it by the time I was probably graduating high school, going into college. It was a joke. It was like, you know, put me in a, a stadium full of well-adjusted healthy human beings and like one one woman with daddy issues or whatever and I'm like she's cute you know I'd find her I would I have a radar for it <laughs> and I would swoop her up and uh yeah and that was that was my story and I didn't know one I, I guess I don't know if I could do anything about it but two I don't know that I wanted to I don't know that I deserved better or was capable of even having a healthy relationship I was like this is this is my this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life and so I was just kind of resigned to that until, you know, it was years into being sober and therapy and, and doing all this healing work. And so I got to the point of like, Oh, wait a second. I don't have to have terrible relationships all my life. <laughs> like I can do something about that. What was your broken picker bottom? Oof. I was seven years sober. I was super sober. Let me tell you. I mean, I was like, speaking at all these different engagements and like helping people and had all these commitments. I was like extra sober. Right. And I was dating probably one of the most unhealthy human beings ever. It was my personal record, just kind of broken in every possible way. It was like an active meth addict, like real bad. It was, it was a real bad situation. Sounds like a winner. Yeah. It, yeah. It was a, it was a dead ringer. And, uh, and I was in love. I was like, it was magic. I'm telling you. And I even wrote her a love song, wrote and recorded a love song while she was in rehab, just to give you an idea of like the, the level of the delusion. And I didn't have an excuse. I couldn't be like, well, I was drunk or high. I was very sober, just in this dumpster fire relationship, you know, picking out curtains and, and wedding rings and like being cute about it, like it was a thing. And it was killing me. I actually didn't feel sober anymore. I felt junked out on the needle, the, the high highs and the low lows. I, I, I didn't feel sober and it was disgusting. And I was like, I, I'm, I don't know, maybe going to die. Like it, it felt like I was, my soul was being crushed. And so I, I just like kind of hit the eject button and just, I, I had to get out of that thing. And uh, I like crawled into another recovery program badly broken and was like help <laughs> like some somebody out you know I got into therapy I decided that I was gonna do this healing work as it related to my relationships and decided that I had to stay single for a year minimum for me I don't recommend that to people but I was like if I try to jump back in a relationship I'm gonna set it on fire quick fast and so I just I set that boundary with myself yeah, I want to get back to that being single for a year thing a little bit later. But so when you were going through this, you're sober, you're working a program. Are you keeping things a secret? Because like that was my pattern, right? I wouldn't tell friends, confidants, my sponsor what was actually going on. And that, that goes exactly to what you were saying about like not feeling sober. It's like the same level of secrecy, denial, lying, all of that stuff that comes with active addiction was very much in play for me in sobriety, in these relationships. So were people in your life aware of who these people were? Were like you telling your close friends like, hey, uh, I just met this wonderful girl. She's a meth addict. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. 
And I'm going to try to answer it as honestly as I can. Um, but you know, in, in those moments, delusion is a real thing, right? Like delusion is you don't know you're lying when you're lying kind of thing. And I honestly don't think that I was keeping it a secret. Yeah, like I, I was a, a, a high school teacher at, at the time. And, and I, brought, I brought this woman. I mean, she had like fuck tattooed across her knuckles and like throat tattoos. And so like she was, she was a little rough. Like brought her to a school play straight up, you know? So I probably should have lied a little more and done a little more hiding in secrecy. But I guess just, you know, the whole rigorous honesty thing. Like I had, I had learned in seven years to, to not be super shady. So I was, I guess I was pretty honest. And that may have been what helped me. I mean, the relationship lasted maybe three months and, and then it just, it, it ripped apart rapidly just because it was so terrible. And so... Uh, yeah, I think if I if I would have lied a lot more and like hit it and I probably could have kept that thing afloat for another year. <laughs> but I, no, it's just it was uh, obviously a terrible relationship and it, and it couldn't last. You know, for me, it was get into these relationships. They'd be horrible. Uh, I knew I shouldn't be in them, but I would I would wait until uh, the guy would end them. But at the end of each relationship, I would make these promises to myself I'm not doing this anymore. Like I'm not going to ignore red flags in the future. This isn't what I want. And I wholeheartedly believed that. Like I didn't want to be in these types of relationships. You know, I didn't want to feel that way. I, on a conscious level, knew that I deserved better. I was reading one of your blogs and I was talking about how we don't realize that we hate ourselves. On the surface, I thought that I was somebody with high self-esteem, with high self-worth, but my actions in romantic relationships clearly showed otherwise. My actions, behaviors showed that I thought very little of myself. And so of course I get into a new relationship full on board of doing things differently and then being completely incapable of doing so and not understanding like why this kept happening to me. Did you have a similar experience? Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, it's almost like I would meet someone and I would write a list of their, their positives and their negatives. And then I would take the negative list and just throw it out the window and just be like, Oh, this person is magnificent in all these ways. Like I said, I'd done a whole bunch of inventory and, and, you know, written out this new ideal for how I was going to con- conduct myself in relationships. And yeah, if someone would be like, Hey, you're cute. And I would just set it on fire. You know what I mean? Like I, and again, it might be like a low self-esteem thing, a self-worth thing that even on a subconscious level of like, oh, I'm a great person and I deserve all this stuff. But my actions didn't indicate that. Mm-hmm. And I had, a, I had a friend in sobriety who, who used to say that uh, her self-esteem was so low, you just had to pat her on the head and her panties would fall down. <laughs> and, and that makes sense to me. I, I get that. I understand that. And just the inability to do it differently, because actually... I, I grew up in Delaware. I lived in Delaware for 28 years. I don't want to hear any jokes about it, but uh, I decided one day, or, or I found out like, oh, I get to decide where I live. And I was like, oh, this is great. And so I decided to move to San Diego. And, uh, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to quit my job and, and sell a bunch of stuff and just like drive, drive west with a dollar and a dream. And, uh, Were you sober at this point? Yeah. I was, uh, I was in sobriety game and was feeling great. And I was like, I'm going to move out there. And uh, I mean, I didn't know anyone on the West Coast. And I was like, all right, I'm going to recreate my life. So I need to spend a year single. This is I told myself, I'm going to I'm going to go out there and just focus on building a new life for myself. 
and doing, doing my thing. I'm going to be single for a year and just create, create a life for myself, put down some roots, get something going. And on my drive to San Diego, I scooped a girlfriend. I swear to God, this, I'm, I'm not making this up. I got one like, like en route. Like at a truck stop? <laughs> Basically, right? Just like picked one up and was like, yeah, this is my girlfriend now. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do have a, a, a history of just like swooping up stray women from, from various locations, just randos. And I, sw- I was so committed that I'm going to do this thing. I want to take care of myself, and I'm going to. And I, I couldn't. I was physically unable to pull it off, right? And so, yeah. And it was her. And then I think after my relationship with her, because you know I destroyed that one too. After the relationship with, with her was my rock bottom you know, with, mm-hmm. with, with the next woman I dated. And, and I was like, you know what, like, I, this is, this is an actual problem, right? Cause I'm familiar with addiction. I'm very familiar with addiction. So addiction for anyone who doesn't know, you know, it isn't like, Hey, I want to do some drugs and you do some drugs. Like that's called, you wanted to do drugs. Addiction is when you say, I don't want to do this anymore. And you just keep fucking doing it. Mm-hmm. That's an addiction where you, where you're powerless People go, why don't you just stop? Well, (laughs) if I could, I would. Were you typically the one that would end the relationships or would it be the woman? Uh, It was either which way. I had experiences of getting cheated on, being left. I don't know if it was 50-50, but one thing that I would do was get into a relationship. I'm unhealthy. She's unhealthy. You know, it would start to look like a relationship. We would like, you know, move in together and stuff and try to be functional. And I would be like, oh, hell no. Like, I, I can't, I can't pull this off. I mean, I would, I would play a good game and like, you know, I would look real adulty about it, but I would, I would just know deep down that like, I, I can't, I'm not capable of doing this. And, and actually to get more detailed is one of the things that I would do was I wouldn't communicate my wants or my needs or my preferences, my boundaries, any of that stuff. Cause I, I got this anxious attachment style where I'm like, you know, I just need someone like, don't leave me. Yeah, you're, you're afraid to run them off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I would just sweep all my wants and needs under the rug and then be resentful as hell that I wasn't getting my wants or needs met. Just the secret thing uh, that I had brewing to myself and then I would be unable to go on anymore with just suffocating with unmet needs because I wasn't asking for any of them to be met. And so I would, I would vanish, just disappear from the relationship. And it was usually like everything was going great. And then Adam was no more, <laughs> right? Just ghosting. You were the ghoster. I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that. But I, I, I didn't know how to life. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, <laughs> I, you know, that's, that's all I had. That's the only thing that I was working with. So for me, that's when I was the craziest was when the relationships would end. It would be like my husband of 30 years di- just died from a heart attack randomly when it's like my alcoholic, emotionally unavailable boyfriend of three weeks just broke up with me. <laughs> um, I was somebody that I would be in so much turmoil for such a long period of time that I wasn't somebody that could hop from one to the next. It would just take me forever to get over this huge loser before I could even be in a place to be open to the next big loser. But so were you one that hopped from one to the next? It sounds like you're a hopper. Yeah, I, I had a little bit of both. I, I had some experience of, of 
being crushed and, and being devastated after a relationship. But yeah, I, I also had some experience with being, being able to just turn it off. Because here's the deal, like I, I grew up in kind of a, an unsafe childhood right? Like it, it wasn't safe to, to want things or need things or trust people or talk about things. Like it just wasn't safe. And so one of my defense mechanisms was to not need anything from anyone, right? Like I got a job when I was 10 years old. By ninth grade, I had two jobs. It was like a grown ass man. You know what I mean? Like I just, my, my, my ticket out of childhood was to just grow up super fast and not need anything from anyone. Mm-hmm. And so what would happen is I would get in relationships and be like, I love you. This is magnificent. Let's be together forever. But if you leave me, I'll be fucking fine. Cause I don't need anybody. Right. Like I had this wall around my heart. I didn't even know it was there until after I had a, a five-year relationship ended and was doing some inventory on it. And a friend of mine was like, have you ever had your heart broken? I was like, what kind of question is that? And, uh, but I thought about it and I was like, no, I, I had never allowed my heart to be broken because I, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't need you. That's, I, I kept people at that kind of distance. Mm-hmm. So this is weird because I have, I have both an anxious attachment style and avoidant attachment style characteristics. I have a little bit of both, right? Which is probably good as a relationship coach because I can relate to everybody, right? Like I get it. And I think it's actually very common because abandonment usually leads to an anxious attachment style, right? So if we have a parent that, that bounces on us, you know, we, we feel like we're not getting that, that attachment need met. We chase after people. And then also enmeshment, when we have an unboundaried, overbearing kind of parent, that creates uh, this avoidant style because it's like too much. You know, we push away from someone. We, we need some autonomy and some space from people. And so... Yeah, what happens for a lot of people, one parent is emotionally unavailable. And so there's the abandonment. And the other parent uses the kids to, to meet their emotional needs. And so that's the enmeshment. So you get a little, little bit of both worlds there. <laughs> so. So, so you hit your bottom and you start working on this stuff. What, have, what are some of the key insights you think that really aided in your healing journey? Oof. Um, well, the, the one that just karate chopped me in the guts was when I realized that that early memory of mine of like trying to fix my mom and then that being all of my relationships, literally all of them. That's one of those things that when you, when it, it shows up on your inventory and you throw up in your mouth a little bit, or it's just like, oh, I need to go cry in the fetal position. That was a big one for me. And then, so I, I guess really getting into recovery from codependency was huge. Well, let me throw this out there. I picked up uh, Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. And this book would just was, it hit me so hard, I, I couldn't put it down. I read it in a couple of days and then I formed a group of my close guy friends to go through it together. So I was like, hey, you guys, I found the answer. <laughs> you know, so we all sat around with our, our broken asses and, and read this book and like cried on each other and stuff. So that was huge. So this, this book takes a look at love addiction and love avoidance and kind of where it comes from. And um, so just a lot of self-awareness was necessary to even start this journey around codependency and attachment styles, love addiction, stuff like this. So a lot of learning. I would say it's huge to be a part of some type of healing group, some type of community. I mean, that's just, that's so important really for anyone. I mean, there's studies with people 
you know, after a bypass surgery, two years later, they're eating Doritos and, and pies and stuff, and they haven't changed their life, faced with death. And then there's, you know, groups that were enrolled in a program after heart surgery with accountability and, and support and all kinds of things to, you know, a community of people. And these people were able to change their lifestyle long term years later, f- faced with massive lifestyle changes, change or die kind of stuff, right? I think a lot of that too has to do with is like the shame element of it, right? Because I think that when we're a part of a community and a group, we realize that we're not unique. And I think that when you when you kind of work through that shame piece of it, that allows for one to be able to actually recover and change. No, no, you said it, but 100%. Shame thrives in isolation. Shame is, well, first of all, it's a universal human emotion. Everyone experiences shame, but like no one's really talking about it uh, because we're ashamed of having shame. And so it's, it's a vicious cycle and everyone wants to pretend like their shit don't stink and they feel great all the time. Um, but we all have shame. And so, yes, being in a group of other people, you know, and you share your deepest, darkest, terrible thing about your life. And they say, yeah, me too. And you're like, oh, I'm not a loser. I just have this thing that other people have too, and they're healing from it. And so can I. Mm -hmm. So being part of some type of group, like I said, a little book study, you know, join a 12 step group or group therapy, anything, be part of a community of people that are healing from the same human experience that you're having, right? Like there's no one's really all that unique. (laughs) We're all pretty much the same. There's always a group that that we can join and and be part of on this healing journey. Mm So now I want to talk about, you know, you said that you were single for a year. I, I guess I didn't date for maybe almost two years after my brain number two bottom, but for me personally, and I, and I know you just said it's not a requirement to clients to work with you like that, but for me, and I guess I can only speak from my own experience, but in my opinion, I really do think that that is so fucking important to, to, to be alone for a little while. I just don't think that I think we have our own work to do on ourselves. And then I think additional work has to be done in relationships, right? Like, I don't think we can fix all of it just by being alone, but I think we have to do that, that self work first. I just don't see how people can work through their shit. If their picker is really that broken, I don't see how you really work through it unless there is a significant period of time of being okay, being alone, right? Because so much of it is self-esteem, self-worth. And if we're not getting to a place where we're just comfortable with ourselves, I don't see how we're going to be able to get to that place in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want to get clean, you got to detox, right? So that's that's exactly what that is. It's, it's an emotional detox of sorts. And One thing that I noticed is just in general, in my life, when I had periods of time when I was single, I was on my self-care game. I was living my best life. I was fabulous. Like everything was fantastic. And I think it's because, um, you know, my self-care was was a priority at that point because I was the only thing on my to-do list, Mm -hmm. right? But as soon as someone else entered the picture, turns out I was the last priority on my list. I just didn't realize it when I only had one thing on the list. Yeah, it's important to heal that stuff when you're single. <laughs> and it's funny, I've been seeing this quote a lot lately. It's, I think it's John F. Kennedy that uh, you fix the roof when the sun is shining. And so when I'm single, you know, I feel fantastic. And it's like, well, oh, I don't need to work on myself. I'm great. 
then I get in a relationship and, and set it on fire. Like, mm, I should have did some work when I was single. <laughs> that is so true. Cause that would be the same for me. You know, I would be single for a period of time and I'd be feeling great, but I wasn't working on the issues partly because I didn't fucking even know what the issues were. But that's to say that I'm not trying to say that uh, just stay single for a year and like that's the golden ticket because I did that and it didn't fucking work. But it's yeah, it's the being single and then also doing the deep inner work. Yes, got to do work. And and you're absolutely right. You start the work by yourself and then you have to road test it. You have to. I mean, so I was seeing a therapist, you know, we're doing all this work. But at some point she was like, Adam, you need to start dating. How far into the process were you? it must've been at least a year in. Um, cause I, I didn't, I was, I went for over a year, probably a year and some couple months, um, of just not flirting, nothing. But yeah, my, my therapist was like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you know, we can't just talk about this crap. Like we gotta, uh, you know, put some boots on the ground and see what you can do out there. And so I was like, okay. And, uh, now I remember uh, a woman in, my, in our friend circle, you know, just in the crew kind of, and, um, we kind of just inadvertently had lunch together. I don't remember like setting it up, but we like, I don't know, we ran into each other or something and just like had a little impromptu date of sorts. You know, we didn't really call it that, but it was like a little thing. And so I told my therapist right away and, uh, and she was like, how old is she? And I was like, man, she has like a radar or something. And, uh, and turns out, turns out she was like 21 or 22 or something. And I was like, I don't know, I was like 30. Right. And she was like, Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> she shut me down so quick. She said, Adam, you are not allowed to date that person ever. So tell her. She was like, if you need to tell her that I said it, go ahead. You can't date her. And I was like, damn it. Because <laughs> I felt all magical, right? I was like, ooh, I'm, I feel, I never felt this way before. I'm in love. I think I'm in love again. You know, you know how it goes. Uh, but she was like, nope, that's not it. <laughs> shut me down. And you listen, that's huge. So this is why it's so important to have community, to have a mentor, to have a sponsor, to have somebody who knows what the hell they're doing to be able to tell you, you know, what's going on or to guide you or tell you when you're fucking up. So, uh, yeah. And so I was, I was able to listen reluctantly, uh, but I did because I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, my track mm-hmm. record is bad. And so... You know, and this, the therapist was like, you need to go on, what was the number she gave me? She was like 19 dates or 17 or 19 dates before you have sex with someone. I was like, what? Like, you're high. Like, <laughs> that's, that doesn't even make sense. I'm not willing to do that. Yeah, yeah I draw the line somewhere. But, uh, but I was like, you know, what? I was just, I was so broken and just willing to do whatever that I was, I was open to that. I was like, I'll, I'll hear that. I'll listen to that, you know, and I had, I had a person tell me once it was like a recovery coach that I started to work with, but that it didn't work out. And he told me that I could only go on group dates for the first three months. And I was like, nah, not wanting to do that. It's fucking weird. Group dates. Yeah. (laughs) How do you get to know someone bowling (laughs) or whatever? So then, okay. So you had, that was your first date. So then what happened? Tell me, how was your journey? What did you notice? Who were you attracted to? How did it go? Um, yeah, I guess as I was, uh, you know, feeling more seaworthy, you know, having having done a whole bunch of work, I think I was just a lot more in charge of who I was attracted to. Like, I think that that moment of her telling me, you can't see that that young girl, <laughs> you can't date that little girl, uh, when she told me that, and then I was, 
Like she gave me permission to set a boundary, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a thing that's always been hard for me. Uh, and I think for anyone with an, an anxious attachment style, because a boundary is a, a possible thing that separates me from my connection that I need desperately. But she gave me permission to set a boundary. And she like, you know, she gave me the training wheels for that. And when I did it, I was like, wow, look at that. I can do this. Like I can adult in, in relationships and I can make choices. I don't just have to jump into a thing and ride so the wheels fall off. And so I started going on these little dates um, where, yeah, I would go on a date and like first date, you know, someone would start spinning their red flags and tell me about their horrible abandonment stories of their broken childhood. And I'm like, okay, then, <laughs> you know, and I, and I was able to be like, Hey, this was, you know, this was a lovely dinner and it was, you know, nice to, to get to know you a little bit. And yeah, I don't see this. I don't see long-term compatibility here. So like, good luck out there champ, you know, and I was able to just like walk away, which is, it was new for me to be able to, to make those decisions to, to walk away with dignity from a relationship, not like run away in the middle of the night or like, you know, set it on fire, sabotage it or, you know, nothing, but just be like, Hey, I don't think we're a good adult fit. <laughs> and just walking away. It was crazy. Back with integrity. Yeah. With integrity. And that's the thing. There's, there's people who aren't acting with integrity, but it's not a moral shortcoming. It's just, they're too wounded and insecure and just don't have the skills or the tools to do anything different. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I had to learn. And so I started, I started actually dating. So here's the thing. I didn't know that dating was a thing, you know, for pretty <laughs> much all my life. I would just like pick one and be like, that one's mine, you know, and just take a hostage. And that was it. There was no dating. I wasn't getting to know anyone. Like we just, we moved in or had sex or did something immediate and drastic. And then it was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're together now. <laughs> there was no rational thought to it. So then tell me about with your wife, how long had you been practicing dating before you started to date her? A couple years, maybe. Yeah, yeah, probably two, two years, something like that. And had you had any relationships in that period of time? Had anything gone for more than a couple dates? Um, yeah, actually, I, I did have a, a relationship. Yeah, I was like, I dated and then then I got into a relationship with someone who I was like, oh, this could, this could be a thing. And uh, it, was, it was very healthy uh, compared to everything I had ever done before. And I don't know, we might've been together for nine months or something like that, maybe a year. So then why did that one end? This person, and this is something that I'm glad I know and, and that I tell to my clients is that she was fantastic in a lot of ways. And she, she like checked my top five boxes of like what I'm looking for in a partner really a wonderful human being. The other sixth box that is always there for anyone, like you have to check this other box if you want a relationship, is she wasn't willing to work on her shit. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if there ever there was a conflict or anything came up, it was 100% my fault. She couldn't be bothered with it. She was like, yeah, that's your problem. You better figure it out and do it better next time. Like she just couldn't, she couldn't own any part of it. Even if it was 90% my part, she couldn't own her 10. And I was like, this is, this is not sustainable. You can't be perfect. And I'm, I'm wrong all the time. Like that's not going to work out. And so it was a bummer, but I had to leave that relationship. Yeah. I really wanted that one to work. But when I was able to see that, like, Hey, long-term, this is just not possible. Mm -hmm. I, I just, 
I had to check out. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And it, it, and it wasn't a ghosty thing. It was like, we, we talked about it and it was, it was an adulty split. That's awesome. Yeah. It was great for me to, to not sell myself short. Cause I'm real good at like trying to squeeze into a space to like, Oh, I'll make this work. Like this'll do. And little duct tape and bubble gum. I'll hold this thing together. Like that's what I've been doing my whole life. Okay. And so then you, your wife was your friend. Yeah. We were kind of just recovery buds sort of like she was super into the Tony Robbins thing. And, um, you know, I ended up going to the unleash the power within, you know? And so we we're just all about, um, you know, just the healing and growth and recovery type stuff. So we're, we were both kind of recovery nerds and we, we exchanged gratitude lists for like a year. So we really knew each other super tight. And, and again, there was no thing there. There was no, there was no flirt. We were just literally just good friends on the same healing journey because I was in a relationship and she was kind of sort of in and out of, I don't know. She was doing her thing. I was doing my thing. We were just good friends. And so we knew each other really well. My wife actually attended one of my, my fixer picker uh, workshops that I, I did it at this conference in Arizona and she attended it. You know, I, 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 was leading people through this process of designing your ideal partner. I mean, we do a whole bunch of other things, but that was one of the activities and just writing down everything you could ever want in a, in a partner, literally anything like Amazon prime custom ordered, you know, person. And she just wrote down your name. No, 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 she didn't. She didn't. She was, she was committed to like, I want to find my person. And she wrote down all these things and it didn't even occur to her right away. But she, um, you know, was kind of sitting with it and like just in this space of, of, you know, preparing to receive, I think. And um, she was on the flight back to, you know, wherever she was at the time. She was reading over it and she was like, this is Adam and this is Adam and this is Adam. And she realized that everything on there was me and it scared the crap out of her because she was like, uh, what do I do with this? Because like I said, we were friends and, and. We, she was living in Dallas. I was in San Diego. She was in Dallas. So like, there was all kinds of reasons why, like, I don't know if this is going to work out, but she, she couldn't not say anything. And so she shared it and was like, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, but I have to tell you that like, you're my person. <laughs> you know, she's like, ah, I don't know what we're going to do about it, but there you have it. Were you already thinking that about her when she shared that with you? Mm, I wasn't thinking it. I was feeling things, but no part of my brain was like, this is a good idea, but I can't say that it wasn't in, in my feelings. Yeah. Because even when she, what we had this conference was in October, I think. And I think she, she let the cat out of the bag in November and I was like, Oh, cool. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not into a long distance relationship. I don't want to do that. I was not interested in that. And she, she, texted me, Hey, do you want to come spend Christmas together or something? And it was like a, just a casual text. So I called her and I was like, you can't just drop a text like that. Like that's the conversation. <laughs> that's the conversation piece right there. Do you want to spend Christmas together? I was like, that sounds romantic. So I called her and was like, this is a big question you're asking. You know, there's a strong possibility that if we spend Christmas together, we're going to fall in love. And she was like, yeah. I was like, you live in Texas. I, like you live a thousand miles away. And she was like, that's correct. She was totally undeterred by anything. I was, I was doing anything I could to kind of try to bail out of it. <laughs> Cause I was scared. I was, I was scared, probably just as scared as she was, but she, but she showed up. Yeah. She showed up for that scary conversation. That is so badass. Go her. Yeah. 
she was like, let's, let's do this. So I, I, I reflected on it. At the time in San Diego, I had a group of guys and we would go out to dinner every Wednesday. And this is so important, you know, and this is something I learned from, uh, you know, some like recovery workshop was men learn how to be men by being with other healthy men, mm. you know, and the same for women, right? So yeah, there's, there's men who have like no male friends and like, wow, oh, that's something to look at. Or women that like don't have women friends, like that's something to maybe take a look at, you know, like whatever that is. But so anyway, I would meet with, with my guys, it's like five or six of us, and we would just talk about life and check in about things every week. You know, it's so important to have an accountability group. And so I, I brought it to the, the circle. It was like, all right, my dudes, I have a, I have a situation. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Rebecca, you know, we're super good friends. And she's, she shared this thing about me and she wants to spend Christmas with me. And like, but I don't know. And she lives there and this and that and blah, blah. And uh, one of my best friends was like, so let me get this straight. There's an amazing, beautiful, successful, healthy woman who's super into you and, and wants to spend Christmas with you. It, he was like, what's, what's the question here? Like, what's the problem? <laughs> he was like, you better go, bro. Like, what are you, what are you waiting for? He was like, if you don't go, I'm fucking going. <laughs> I was like, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, I needed that. I needed that, like, permission to be an adult in relationships. I needed permission to, like, do a big, scary thing. Yeah, I, I, need, I needed support. You know, and that's, that's the thing. Like if people have the problems, people got a broken picker or addiction or any type of problem, depression, anything you're going through, like trying to just figure it out by yourself mm. is brutal, right? Like there's, there's a saying, one man is no man. Mm. So I, I live in Panama, right? For people that are listening, we have a lot of- Yes, I'm hearing all these nice birds in the background. It's very tropical. Yes. We're all on a little vacation here with our ears. <laughs> I have a thousand species of birds in my backyard, but we have a lot of ants. But anyway, so ants are just group critters and together they can build these intricate systems of, of like miles of underground passageways and this economy and all this stuff. They're brilliant creatures. If you have just one ant, you can just set it on a table and it'll just walk around in circles until it dies. It's fucking stupid by itself. But in a, in a colony of ants, they can build bridges from one tree to another using their bodies and walk over each other. They're, they're genius in a community. And I feel like humans have that capacity that, that when, when we're plugged in with a group, when we belong and we're connected with other people on this healing journey, the sky's the limit. But if we're at home just ashamed and, and trying to pretend that we're fine and trying to figure it out by watching YouTube or whatever. Like it's tough. It's tough. So yeah, that's the, the biggest barrier is to, to get over the ego and the pride and the shame. And so, and that's the thing, whenever I, I, I work with anyone who's like, yeah, I've been doing therapy for 10 years and I've read all of the books and I've done all these things. If they've done all the work and they're still not better, Shame, 100% of the time. Shame is, is, is what's, what's killing them. You know, and, and Carl Jung describes shame as a soul-eating emotion, which is a pretty good description. So yeah, shame is a thing that not enough people are talking about. Mm-hmm. So why don't you talk a little bit about your quiz? And then I know that you have some, some data that you could share. So why don't you go on? Yeah. Yeah, this is great. So fixyourpicker.com. There's a button on there. It says check your picker. And, you know, there's a quick 20 question quiz. Yes or no. Bing, bang, boom. And so I just have hordes of data, of people who show up. And so it was interesting to look at it because the, the quiz kind of breaks people down according to their attachment style, more or less. And that's, that's huge for anyone listening 
understanding the basics of attachment theory is just so crucial for, for understanding relationships at all. But anyway, uh, so yeah, the people who take this quiz, they get put into four different buckets. Either they show up as anxious, which is, you know, love addict, codependent, clinger, needy kind of style, anxious attachment, or they are avoidant attachment. This is the aloof people, kind of the fiercely independent people, um, anxious, avoidant, or both, mm-hmm. right? Like we talked about, some people have both characteristics. Mm-hmm. Or the, the fourth bucket is where someone has mild characteristics of each, where they're like, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a secure attachment style, because that's not the way my, my quiz is, is set up. Can you give some examples of some of the questions? The questions are just, you know, do you go from, from zero to marriage in 60 seconds, you know, is, is kind of a, an anxious attachment one, or uh, do you stay in harmful situations for way too long, you know, or there's, do you crave love, but also fear it? Mm-hmm. Or there's, do you avoid sharing intimately mm-hmm. or, or being, being known, being vulnerable with others? Um, do you feel safer being alone? Some of these things. So there's different questions for if you're anxious or avoidant, but it's a quick quiz and people knock it out. And then looking at the data of hundreds of people who have taken this, about 40% of people who show up and take this quiz have an anxious attachment style. 30% have characteristics of both. So that's 70% of the population is either anxious or anxious with some avoidant characteristics as well, maybe a disorganized attachment style. Uh-huh. You know, so these people are like craving relationships, they're chasing after, they, they kind of abandon themselves and they have this fear of abandonment from others and they, they really crave connection uh, more than uh, protection, mm-hmm. right? Because those are the, the two things that we all want, connection and protection. And people with an anxious attachment style will sacrifice protection for the connection. That's the ignoring red flags, staying in harmful situations. They're like, I just need to be connected, even if it's harmful to me. And so avoidance are people who prioritize protection over connection, right? So they'll sacrifice connection for their independence and their autonomy. And like, I need space, you know? And so these, these people are more aloof. So a, a secure attachment style is people who don't sacrifice one for the other. They're like, hey, I'm gonna get connection and protection. This is a healthy relationship. I'm going to set boundaries and, you know, <laughs> what a concept. it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but so anyway, so 40% anxious, 30% have both, uh, 20% have like mild characteristics only answered yes to a handful of questions. And 10% of people who show up and take this quiz are, have an avoidant attachment style. Of course. Right. They're so, going to be avoiding taking this quiz. Exactly. Those, those people aren't super interested in, in learning about relationships and attachment style and all this stuff. Yeah. Interesting to, to look at. And, you know, I, people take this quiz and, and they, they book a free consultation or whatever. And so I look at the quiz and I kind of just know, I just look at it and I'm like, Ooh, like, you know, this person, you know, was abandoned when they were a kid or like, this was going on. Like I can just read it in a matter of seconds. And then I talk to them and they're like, yeah, how'd you know? <laughs> like it's, it's science, you know, like it's, it's just, it's so, um, you know, when we're, alone and struggling or, you know, whatever's going on in our life, it, it, it can seem totally perplexing, but being able to work with a whole bunch of different people and just seeing the volume of numbers and just seeing people from all different walks of life and just realizing, oh, this is, this makes perfect sense. Abandonment, enmeshment, you know, different trauma, like it all just results in these maladaptive coping strategies that, that people carry into the relationships. And it, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So it's like not a mystery once you look at it in black and white. Absolutely. Which is is good. So regardless of where someone falls on the spectrum, obviously not somebody that's secure, but 
is there like a, a high level overview plan for someone to fix their picker? I mean, like, where does one begin? Yeah. So that's a, a great question. So the process of change in general is knowing better, doing better, and then being better. That's just how change works. People want to just jump to the being better part, but that's not a thing. So there's a lot of um, self-awareness. And so inventorying, you know, talking with, with a coach or a therapist and, and uh, doing a little CSI work, right? A little crime scene investigation on your childhood because everyone's childhood is quote unquote normal, right? Because you're just born into whatever you got going on. Everyone's childhood's normal. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is what we do. And so they, they become adults because they're like, oh, I got to learn how to pretend like I know what I'm doing and pay bills and whatever. And people don't look at their childhood and find all the, the, the broken pieces and the trauma and the, and the, the things that neglect, whatever, that, that affect deeply all of how they show up in the world, in their relationships, in their job, like everywhere. It, it all stems from your childhood, right? We don't have any new problems. All of our problems are old. And in fact, the most persistent adult problems we have were actually childhood solutions, mm-hmm. right? So let's say it's a volatile household and your parents are fighting or whatever, you become hypervigilant. You learn how to like sense other people's feelings and emotions and know like, is mom on the edge right now? Is she about to rage and break something? Like you become uh, very, very hypervigilant and, and people might say, oh, I'm an empath. I'm so empathic. Maybe you're just traumatized. <laughs> Maybe that's a thing. So kind of making sense of your story, going back and, 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 and taking a look at what happened to you when you were a kid and it makes sense that that has to happen. You have to, you have to make sense out of that story. But a lot of what happens with uh, abuse or, or neglect, abandonment, enmeshment, all these things are technically all forms of abandonment, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the child is being abandoned somehow, either mentally or physically, or even if, if, if a child's getting his ass beat, you know, he's, he's not getting the, the parenting that he should have gotten. So it's all ab- abandonment. And so abandonment always results in self-abandonment. Always, always, always. And so the work of fixing your picker has a lot to do with reclaiming yourself, with, with uh, a radical return to self, with getting in touch with your feelings, your wants, your needs, your preferences, your, your boundaries, just coming home to yourself in, in all of the ways. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, but that's, if I had to give you like a short answer, fixing your picker is, is just a lot about becoming a whole self again. So then we heard your success story. Is there a particular story or client that you have that get, kind of gives you butterflies when you think about it? Um, I've had, I've had the, the honor and the privilege of working with some, some pretty neat people and, and seeing them make big turnarounds. Yeah. I, I worked with, a. uh, a single mom in Brooklyn who was had kind of a, a, a deadbeat addict, you know, kind of a boyfriend, but like not a boyfriend, you know, just some like terrible thing. You know what I mean? You know, <laughs> and um, I worked with her for a handful of sessions and she just, she picked it up, like just took to it like a fish to water and just was doing everything and was just on fire for it. And yeah, I don't know. We might've met five or six times or something like that. And yeah, she had a huge turnaround huge, massive turnaround, like cut this dude off and is, is all about self-care and self-love and taking care of herself and her, and her kids and a uh, huge success story. Just fantastic. Yeah. Love, love her. She, she's great. 
uh, I had a, a, another, another woman who was chasing a super unavailable dude, just very unavailable guy. And I can't relate. you know, like, yeah, you know, and it, it's, and when it's like, you know, we've been together for nine months, but like, I don't know what we are. Like, I don't know if we're together, but we are, you know, one of these things. And I was like, Oh Lord help me. And so, uh, yeah, worked with her, you know, did some crime scene investigation, dug into her, dug into her shit and, um, did a bunch of work and she's, she made a huge turnaround. She's actually now she's engaged. She's pregnant. She's got a great guy. And, and I was with her for this process of, you know, getting rid of a dude, healing, doing some healing work, like setting boundaries with her parents, just doing all kinds of work, dating, having to be like, oh, this isn't the right guy for me. And let's try this through this process. And, and yeah, she, she's got a, a fantastic guy. And like any relationship, you know, nothing's perfect, but she's, she's got the skills to, to not chase terrible people and to not run away from something, you know, when, when it's good or when it's, when it's challenging say, oh, I can't do this. It's too hard. And so she's doing it. Yeah. She's doing it big. She, she's, she's doing great. And so, yeah, I've, 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 I've been able to connect with people like on different continents and different, you know, uh, men and women and some, some younger people, some older people, like all kinds of different people. And, and one of the, the greatest gifts of this work that I do is seeing that we're all the same, mm. you know, whether you're in, in, in Budapest or Canada or the U S or in Panama, you know, uh, yeah, the people are all the same and they have the same universal experience with, with their childhoods, with relationships, with shame. Like it's, we're all the same. And so there's something really refreshing about that actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Freeing. And also helps to release that shame part of it as well, to know that we're not alone. We're yeah. not terminally unique. Yeah. So in closing, is there anything you want to touch upon? I know that you have some resources that you want to provide to listeners. Uh, well, yeah, that's the one thing um, that we had talked about is that I created a, a page mm-hmm. on uh, it's, it's fixyourpicker.com slash adult child podcast, one word. And um, I'll, I'll call it in the show notes. Okay. And so one of the things that, that I, I sell on my, on my site, but I'm, I'm happy to give it to your listeners for free is, is this, this inventory workbook It's the fix your picker workbook. And it's, it's a process of identifying your, your patterns and characteristics of how you show up in relationships. You know, there's a fear inventory, you know, what kind of love did you learn growing up this process of uh, designing an ideal partner with deal breakers and, you know, preferences. And, and uh, it's just this whole workbook of, really just unfucking your relationship skills. <laughs> and it's, it's something that I've developed over the years personally and, you know, doing workshops with tons of people and just getting input and working with people. And so I love it. It's a great resource. And so I would love for your listeners to be able to download it for free. So like I said, fixyourpicker.com slash adult child podcast. And there's, there's a list of other resources there too, different quizzes for attachment style or relationship quiz, trauma, you know, adverse childhood experience quiz I, I have linked on there. Just resources for, for getting into this healing work, you know, kind of a, a self-awareness starter kit. Amazing. And obviously, uh, you know, you can follow me on Instagram at Fix Your Picker. Uh, I yeah. put up fresh content every single day. And it's, I just, I want to get the message of healing out to the world. You know, this is work that everyone needs to be doing, in my opinion. I mean, it's just the human experience. You know, like we all have shame. We all experience trauma. We all have, you know, relationship problems. This is just being human. Like, why aren't we talking about this? I mean, they certainly don't 
teach about it in school. So like, you know, we have, we have to start these conversations. We got to plug into these communities of people that are doing this work. Cause like 50 years ago, you know, this wasn't a thing. I think there's just a huge awakening that's happening that people are just humanity. I mean, it's just growing the fuck up, you know, talking about the ugly things, you know, being transparent, having integrity around these things and, and supporting each other through this, this scary thing called life. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And I will be sure to include um, everything about you, all the resources, your website, your Instagram in the show notes. So people please hit a boy up, a boy named That's Adam. Right. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. I, I, I love what you're doing. I love the podcast. If there's any way I can support you going forward, you, you know, I'm cheering for you. So yeah, I appreciate awesome. it. Well, that wraps up today's episode. I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Thank you again to Adam. Please check out the show notes for links to him as well as other resources to help you on your own journey. That was a pretty long interview, so I'm going to skip Hit a Girl Up today. I have a few questions that I want to address, but the answers are going to be a little bit more lengthy. So we will do that next week. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Adult Child Pod. If you have not already done so, if you could please give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast, I will be forever grateful. And if you have comments, questions, insights, hit a girl up. Check out the show notes for details on how to contact me. Next week, I will see you all for another great episode. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. I'm